John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it, where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Today we are continuing uh, on in our study on being born again and the necessity of being born again. Um, last night on the couch, uh, Jamie glanced over as I was reviewing my sermon and saw that the title was uh, You Must Be Born Again, Part 5. And she started laughing. And uh, I didn't know what she was laughing at. I had no idea why that's funny. But uh, anyway, as we get into this, would you pray with me? And um, pray for the Lord's blessing to be upon us. Father, we've heard your word this morning, both in the call to worship. Lord, we've heard your word in the memory, uh, the memory verse. Um, we've heard your word even in the announcements and in the prayers prayed and Lord, in the songs sung, we've heard the message of the scriptures. And we have not only sung those truths back to you in praise and worship, but we have sung those truths to one another, reminding each other of the great hope that we have in your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would unite our hearts to fear your name this morning. As I often pray, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. Let our spiritual the eyes, the eyes of our hearts be enlightened this morning, Lord, so that we might know more fully what is the hope of your calling, what is your glory in your inheritance in the saints, 
Lord? And what is the immeasurable greatness of power that belongs to us who believe? Lord, this power that you have brought about through the very resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This power that belongs to us, not only by raising him from the dead, but seating him in heavenly places and counting us as having already been seated with him there. What immeasurable power that is, Lord. I pray that you would help us know it more fully and worship you in light of it this morning. Father, we want your blessing to be upon the word this morning. We want our hearts to be open and our minds to be renewed in the truth. And, uh, and Lord, as we come here together, we, we come with various uh, distractions, but also various burdens that are heavy upon us. And uh, I pray, Lord, that the distractions would melt away as we endeavor to fix our gaze upon Christ. That we would know the power of the gospel, Lord, in causing the worldly things to fade into the background and causing Jesus to be exalted in our view. Lord, concerning the burdens, I pray that you would help us grieve and help us mourn and help us struggle in manners that are honoring to you and worthy of your name. Lord, we want to lift up the Magler family to you and Dick Magler, Jeff Magler, and their children, Lord, as, as Jeff and Jackie's children as they mourn the passing of Jackie. And um, uh, Father, you know your purposes behind these things. And I pray, God, that you would draw near to them now in their time of uh, sorrow and mourning. that through all of this, Lord, you would show Jeff that you are a faithful God and that those who trust in you will never be disappointed. Father, would you refine this family through this trial and glorify your name in their salvation. Our hope is in you, Lord Jesus. You have conquered death. And so even in death, we need not fear. You are the faithful shepherd, and you will lead us through the valley of death when our time comes. Lord, we look forward to that day. And we ask you that in between now and then, you would make us worthy and fit for the kingdom. You would perfect us for the glory of your name. You would conform us to the image of Jesus Christ that you would do that work even here and now as we turn to your word in John 3. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is an amazing statement in uh, the opening verse of 2 Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter writes, Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Now the ESV here, to balance out my praise of the ESV last week, 
The ESV gets it wrong here. It is not a faith that is equal to ours. It is a faith that is of the same kind as ours. Peter writes, It's a faith that we have received, which means it's a gift. That's amazing in itself. It's a faith that we have received as a gift upon the basis of the righteousness of another, Jesus Christ. It's through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we have received this gift of faith. But what stood out to me the most in this verse was the fact that the faith believers have received is a faith that is the same kind of faith that the apostles had. Now, you think about that. We often think of the apostles as having the advantage over us, right? I mean, none of us have walked on water with Jesus. None of us have watched Jesus with our own eyes raise the dead. None of us have performed miracles like healings uh, just by people touching uh, a rag that we touched. And yet Peter says that we, if we are truly believers, we have a faith that is the same kind of faith that enabled the apostles to do those things. They saw Jesus with their own eyes. They heard him with their own ears. They touched him with their own hands. That's what John says in 1 John 1. And we're often tempted to think that because of that, they had a kind of faith in Jesus that goes far beyond anything that you and I will ever experience will ever possess. But according to Peter, we've all received the same kind of faith that the apostles had, and that means that our faith is not a disadvantaged faith. Do you believe that about your faith in Jesus Christ? That the faith God has given you as a gift is not a disadvantaged faith? It's not a faith that is of lesser advantage than the apostles themselves? It is a faith that is of the same kind as theirs. That's not to say that the apostles did not have that faith or experience that faith in a greater degree than we experience it. But in essence, it was not a faith of a different kind. It was a faith based upon the same thing. Our faith is based upon the same thing their faith was based upon. Jesus Christ, right? Now, they experienced the revelation of Christ differently than we experienced the revelation of Christ. They experienced the revelation of Christ firsthand. We experienced the revelation of Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit by means of his word. But the faith that saved the apostles is the same kind of faith that saves believers today and that enables them to live lives that are glorifying to God. Now, what kind of faith is that? Well, I believe that that's what Jesus is describing here in John chapter 3. The kind of faith by which he saves his people. We started looking at this last week, uh, looking at the first quality of that kind of faith that Jesus gives us in John 3.10, where he describes it as a kind of faith that understands the truth. And along with that, it's also the kind of faith in verse 11 that receives the truth. And in verse 12, it's the kind of faith that believes the truth. That's a kind of faith that was different than what Nicodemus had. Even though Nicodemus had a kind of faith, it was not the kind of faith that would save him. 
And as we're considering this, what's important for us to keep in mind is that it is the presence or absence of this kind of faith that Jesus describes in John 3 that proves whether or not you and I have experienced the new birth. This is the greatest fruit that manifests in the lives of those who've experienced the new birth. Now, we jumped into this last week, looking at how Jesus defines the nature of faith. And we asked the question, what is faith? As we began to consider how Jesus describes it here in John 3. In John 3.10, as I just mentioned, Jesus describes faith as understanding, first of all. Now, it's not merely mental or intellectual understanding. I brought out the example of Bart Ehrman, who understands much more about the message of the Bible than most Christians do. He can rattle off the truths and the facts of what the Bible teaches concerning Jesus and his virgin birth and his righteous life and his atoning death and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into glory and his return. Bart Ehrman could walk you through the entirety of the scriptures and show you how the entire Bible is pointing towards that message. And yet, Bart Ehrman does not have a saving understanding of those facts. They have not affected him. They have not shaped his mind. They have not conformed his soul to the truth of God. He does not receive them. He does not understand or believe in them in a saving way. What we're talking about and what Jesus is talking about here in John 3, when he describes the nature of faith, when he says that it is understanding, he's talking about a spiritual understanding. He's talking about a, what we called a divine illumination an internal persuasion about the truthfulness of Jesus and his teaching. That's what we mean when we're speaking of understanding. One commentator named uh, Linsky uh, commented very helpfully on this. He says that the verb in this verse, the verb understand, is more than mere intellectual comprehension. It means inner apprehension, a knowing which embraces and appropriates truth in the heart. That's the kind of understanding that we're, that we're getting at here. 1 John 5.20 describes it like this. It says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. You see the connection there between the understanding Jesus came to give and the result of that understanding. It leads us into a true, spiritual, saving knowledge of the God who is truth. 1 John 5.20. So the first evidence of true faith that Jesus lists out here in John 3 is uh, the granting of a personal relational knowledge of God and a spiritual understanding of his truth. Now that leads us to the second description Jesus gives us here in John 3.11. Where true faith is not only described as that which understands the truth, but it's also described as that which accepts the truth. True faith accepts the truth. He says in verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, we speak of what we know and we bear witness of what we have seen, and you do not accept our witness. Now, we set forth the principle last week that in the ways that Jesus is, is, is speaking to Nicodemus, he's speaking to Nicodemus in the negative and saying, Nicodemus, this is what you do not have, and this proves that you have not been born again. You do not have this kind of faith, and this proves that you are not a member of the kingdom. Well, if that's true, then the reverse of that is true. If the absence of these things means that you are not part of the kingdom, then the presence of these things means you are a part of the kingdom. 
So if we have the kind of faith that not only understands the truth, but also receives and accepts the truth, then we have the kind of faith that comes about as the result of being born again. Now, what does it mean to accept the truth? Anyone want to throw out a thought? That's dangerous when I do that. No, let's not do that. Who said something? Someone said something. That was you, wasn't it, Gordon? Well, the word for accept here in the Greek has the idea of laying hold on something. It's not actually a passive thing that's being described here. It's an active verb. It's something that's being done. It's, it's picturing the, the, if you can picture in your mind, stretching out uh, a spiritual hand and grabbing a hold of the truth. That's what's being communicated through this idea of accepting the witness that Jesus came to give us. It's grasping the truth with the spiritual hand of faith. It's clinging to it. It's embracing it. Now, this is what actually, this is what moves, um, this is what moves the believer beyond that which is described as mere mental assent. So like to agree cognitively with the facts of the gospel is not the same thing as receiving the gospel, embracing it and grabbing a hold of it. True believers not only acknowledge the truth, but they find within themselves that they are driven instinctively to embrace the reality of the truth they've come to see. Now, and logically, this is the inevitable response of a heart that has been awakened to see the truth, right? When your eyes, when the spiritual eyes of your heart have been enlightened to know that which is true, the immediate response will be to embrace it. If you have saving faith, it will manifest as a heart that is clinging to the truth of Jesus. This is what's behind the idea of irresistible grace in Reformed theology. That when God comes to save his people and he awakens them to the reality of grace that's revealed in Jesus, they are irresistibly drawn to it because they are awakened to see it as the all-consuming reality. A saving understanding of the truth will always lead to a wholehearted embrace of the truth as taught by Jesus. Now, that is the mark of the kind of faith that results from being born again. We learn from 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural man, the man that does not have the Spirit of God, the man that has not been born again, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, right? It says there that they are actually foolishness to that person. And he cannot discern the truth in the things of the Spirit because the truth of God are, uh, contain matters that can only be spiritually discerned. But in the new birth, when the Holy Spirit enables you to understand the truth savingly and truly, He fills you with an ability to see and evaluate the truth of God's Word from a, from a spiritual perspective. You remember the Holy Spirit's job, as it's described later on in the Gospel of John, it's to exalt Jesus before our eyes. It's to take of that which belongs to Jesus and give it to us, to, to illumine our hearts, to understand the real and true glory that belongs to Jesus Christ. That's the work of the Spirit of God. 
Until the Spirit of God enters into a sinner's heart and begins to awaken that sinner to the reality of Christ and His glory, that sinner will always remain blind to Jesus. This is, why, this is why I say it, and I say it all the time. Conversion is a supernatural miracle that is performed by the Spirit of God in our hearts. It is not a mere decision that we make to follow Jesus. It's a radical change that God works inside the heart of a sinner. And you've got to understand that if you want to understand the power of God that's been manifest in your own life. You have been made new by the Spirit of God if you are a believer and an embracer of Jesus. If in your heart you find some kind of resonance that causes you to cling to Jesus Christ, then you have experienced the miracle of the new birth. And you need to praise God for that. Don't be like the lepers that experienced the blessing of the Lord but did not turn around to give Him thanks. Right? The heart of your worship is, is dependent upon... Let me say it this way. The degree of, of your worship... The fullness of your praise unto the Lord will depend upon your ability to grasp the great and wondrous deeds that God has accomplished in your own life. When the Spirit of God comes, He removes the blinders from our hearts and He enables us to see the truth in such a way that we embrace it. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 describes this, right? When Paul came to the Thessalonians, he said, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which performs its work in you who believe. Now that last phrase is really an amazing statement about the power and the efficacy of the Word of God as it continues to work in the lives of believers. God's Word continues to sanctify us. It continues to be the means of changing us. It continues to be the touch point in our relationship with God where we come to His Word and we meet with the living God as He speaks to us from His Word. Right? That's, that's, the, that's the power of the Spirit. That's what sanctifies us. That's what enables us to keep living lives of endurance and perseverance faithfully to the end when Jesus comes. It's all about God working His will into our lives through His Word. And let me just as parentheses say, if you are a believer and you are not devoting yourself regularly and faithfully to the intake of God's Word, you're cutting yourself off from the power to live the Christian life. So many believers complain about their spiritual state, but they don't look right in front of them and evaluate actually what's wrong. It's like the guy running into a brick wall over and over again, and he tells his friends, man, my head's bleeding and it hurts, but I don't know what's wrong. And a friend comes and evaluates the man and watches him bang his head against the wall for 30 minutes and then says, you know, I'm no doctor, I'm not an expert, but I think I know what your problem is. And it's not complicated. We oftentimes think that our, our spiritual problems are some kind of deep, complicated, mystical things that we need to untangle and work through. Whereas in reality, the spiritual life of the Christian is very simple. Devote yourself to the Lord in prayer. Devote yourself to God and His Word. Seek to live out a, a life that is honoring to God through practical obedience and you will grow in grace. It'll cost you everything to do that. But the instructions are very simple. 
when these believers, so, so that last phrase, that the word of God is what continues to, to carry on the supernatural work of the new birth. That is continued on in our lives into conformity to the image of Christ through the word of God. But it's also what initiates that supernatural life with God. Paul says, when we came to you and we spoke the word of God to you, you did not receive that word from us as that which came from man. You did not receive it as the word of man. You received it as what it really is, the word of God. Now let me ask this question. Did everyone that Paul spoke the word of God to in Thessalonica wind up believing in that word? Not everyone. How do we know that? that that's... Thessalonica was one of the most persecuted churches in the New Testament time period. Off the bat, Paul could only spend three weeks there because they were persecuting him so severely. So the whole city didn't, everyone who heard the word of God didn't receive it. What made the difference between those who did receive it and those who didn't? It was the new birth, right? It's the new birth that enables us to hear within the word of God, the voice of God speaking. And if we haven't experienced a new birth, we're never going to be able to receive the word as anything other than the word of men. Man's opinion about God. Man's opinion about the life of God. This is what's wrong with academics and scholastics today. They take their unbelief and they, and they just cast it all over the scriptures and say, well, this, this is all that religion is. This is all that following Christ is. It's just one man's opinion about what God is like and, and we're going to take our pick on, on whichever one suits our fancy. That's not the new birth. The new birth enables us to hear within the word of God, the voice of God. J.I. Packer, again, I read this quote last week. And it was so good, I wanted to bring it back in. Packer writes, The result of this witness, this Holy Spirit birthing in us, this illuminating work and enabling us to hear the voice of God in his word. Packer says, The result of this witness is a state of mind in which both the Savior and the Scriptures have evidenced themselves to us as divine. Jesus, a divine person, scripture, a divine product. And it does this in a way as direct, immediate, and arresting as that in which taste and colors force themselves on our senses. In consequence, Packer says, we no longer find it possible to doubt the divinity of either Christ or the Bible. That's the product of the new birth. And then I would say, I would go further than that and say, once we have experienced that and we find it no longer possible to doubt the divinity of Christ or the divinity of his word, then we are brought to the point where we find it no longer possible to do anything other than embrace the truth that we now see. Colossians 2.8 has a good word to describe this. You know what that, you know what that word is? Captivated. Captivated. That by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the believer becomes someone who is captivated by the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. We're captivated by the hope that he extends to us in the gospel. And from that point forward, in the life of someone who truly has been born of God, 
the moment that you are captivated by the truth and the beauty and the glory of Jesus and the hope that he brings to us in his gospel, the only true satisfaction that your soul can find from that point forward is in yielding to that captivation. Once you are captivated by Christ to see Him for who He really is, the only thing that will satisfy your soul from that point forward is yielding to that captivation. That is the mark of the kind of faith that results from being born again. And I, Let me end on one more point on, on this. Not in the sermon. We're not that close to being done yet. But on this point, in a sense, when we are brought to the point where we, where we accept and receive the word of God, really what that is, is the first sign of a soul that is surrendered to Christ. See, when you accept the truth as Jesus taught the truth, because that's what Jesus is dealing with here in John 3. He's saying to Nicodemus, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not accept our witness. You don't receive what I'm telling you, Nicodemus. When we come to the point where we see Jesus' teaching as true, as the, as the only thing that is true, then the expression, and, and we accept it for what it is, that is the expression of the soul coming to an end of itself. When we realize that there is nothing else for us to cling to other than Christ. When we realize that there is no other reality for us to hope in besides Jesus' death and his resurrection. When we find that there is no other understanding of the world around us than what we have now come to see in Jesus. Accepting that truth is our moment of willful surrender. That's, that's where we come before God and we accept God's terms of surrender. We receive his message of our hopeless condition and of the only hope we have of being saved before his judgment seat as being that which Jesus did for us. When we come to the point where we willingly bow before him and renounce what we were holding to before and accept those truths, that is willful surrender before our God. In that moment, we sign with our hearts God's terms of surrender and all of our lofty thoughts that were raised up against the knowledge of Christ collapse. All of our antagonism against God and against his Messiah fades away. All of our arguments and our speculations lifted up against the knowledge of the truth crumble under the wrecking ball of truth when the Holy Spirit uses it to tear us down. And in that moment of divine illumination, when true faith is awakened in us, the heart comes to the point where it willingly lays down its arms and surrenders to the truth. Have you come to that point? Do you renounce the world and the thinking of the world and the ways of the world? Do you renounce your sin? Do you renounce and reject your false ideas about God and what he's like and what he will accept and what he won't accept? Do you renounce your ideas of, of self-grandeur and self-importance and fall humbly before the beloved Son of God?
That's a sign of true faith if that is you. See, in a sense, whenever we come to accept the truth as Jesus taught the truth, when we receive it with a pure and a whole heart, that is an act of sincere and wholehearted worship that embraces the truth to itself as the defining reality that covers all of our lives. And so when a person does not do that, then you can be sure that that person has not yet experienced the grace of saving faith that comes as a result of the new birth. So when we have faith produced in us by the Holy Spirit through the new birth, when our spiritual eyes are open to see the spiritual truths about Jesus, it will be instinctual in us, in our hearts, to grab onto those truths and to cling to them. So that's what, that's what saving faith does. It not only comprehends the truth, it's not only persuaded of the truth, but it embraces it wholeheartedly. Now, there's one more element of saving faith as Jesus describes it here in John 3, and that's, that's what we need to see next, because this really completes the picture of what true and saving faith is. Faith not only understands the truth, faith not only receives the truth, but point number three, faith also believes in the truth. Jesus says in verse 12, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, very often, maybe some of you even thought this when I said it, very often we think of faith and believing as being the same thing. But they are not the same thing, and there's a really important difference between the two. One of them is a root and a cause of the other. At a basic level, faith is a noun, and believing is a what? It's a verb. Faith is not believing. Believing might express faith, but it is not in its essence faith. If you have faith, you possess something. It's a noun. It's something that you have. It's something you hold. It's something that is in your possession. Faith is a conviction or a persuasion about what is true. You remember the, the famous definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the what? Say it louder. Faith is the conviction of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith is conviction. Faith is evidence in our own hearts of that which we cannot see, proving to us that it is true. It's a hope that we have. Faith is an object, if you will. It's granted to us, a substance of something that's granted to us, an ability. Faith is something you possess. It's a conviction, a persuasion about what is true. You have come to know something with sureness. Now, if you believe upon what you have come to know, then you are exercising faith. You're acting upon it. You are living in light of the conviction and the persuasion that you now possess. So faith is the conviction. Believing is acting upon that conviction. Does that make sense? You guys with me? Some of you are like, I don't think you're as clever as you think you are, brother. <laughs> well, it's true. What I'm saying is actually true. And I'm not as clever as, in fact, I don't think I'm clever. 
But it's a, this is a true, and, and this is a really important distinction between faith and belief. Faith and believing. See, believing is faith in action. And this is the most important evidence that a person has true and saving faith in Christ. They actually begin to act upon that faith in tangible ways. So Jesus tells us, for example, in John chapter 10, that this is the distinguishing characteristic of those who believe in him. John 10, 26 through 27, Jesus says to these Jewish leaders, you do not believe in my teaching. You do not believe in what I'm saying, my words. Because you are not of my sheep. Now, just parentheses, we're going to unpack this fully when we eventually get there. Half of us will be in the grave and in glory with Christ, but we'll get to John 10. Jesus says, you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. That means not believing signals the fact that you do not belong to his sheep, not the other way around. Believing is the manifestation that you truly belong to the people of Christ, those whom the Father gave Jesus to save. But he says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep, pay attention to this. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they do what? They follow me. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. See, the proof that you have truly been awakened to hear the voice of Christ speaking through the truth. The proof that you have truly been awakened to hear the voice of Christ and the proof that he knows you is that you are actively following him in faith and you are obeying his word. There's no saving faith in Christ where there is no will to follow Christ. That's the point. And practically, yes, this does look like devoting our lives to obeying Jesus' commands. We ask, well, what does it mean to follow him? Well, obviously, it means obeying his commands. It means willingly yielding ourselves to live in obedience to what the Holy Spirit has now shown us to be true. Not perfectly, but sincerely. But even more fundamentally than that, more foundationally, Following Jesus looks like choosing every day to live in the light and the hope of his gospel in every single circumstance. We could define faith as obedience to Christ, whereas really faith, obedience to Christ is an expression of faith, but it's not really the essence of faith. Living by faith is choosing every day to live in the light and hope of his gospel. It's choosing to abandon all that we are and all that we do to the hope that God has proclaimed to us through his son. Living by faith means every moment we are feeding upon the truth that we memorized in John 6, 51. That Jesus is the living bread that came down from heaven Anyone who eats of this bread will have eternal life. And the bread that he came to give for the life of the world is his flesh. He came to give his life for us that we might live with him. See, when we're exercising faith, when we are following Jesus, we are making a conscious, willful decision to feed upon that bread every moment of every day that comes, our, comes down our way. 
that rhyme, I didn't mean that. Every moment and every day that we experience, we choose to live by faith by feeding upon Christ in those individual moments that we face. Casting ourselves upon Jesus in every circumstance, trusting in His blood to cover us and to cleanse us from our sin when we fail. Trusting in His righteousness as our standing before the Father despite our failures. Banking on the fact that Jesus, even at this moment, is continually praying for us at the right hand of the Father. He is interceding for us and praying that the Father would indeed finish the good work that He's begun in us. You live by faith. You follow Jesus in faith by living in the light of that reality. Even, and I would say especially, in your failures and in your weaknesses. It doesn't take great faith to believe in Jesus when you and I are walking in a way that seems extremely faithful. Our consciences are not troubled when we have no recognition of sin in our lives. Well, the sin's there. We may not recognize it. But we feel that we're in right standing with the Lord in those moments. Probably some false assurance mixed in with that there. But it's in, especially in the moments of our weakness and our failings, that we have to rise up to the call to walk by faith and not by sight. In the deep, dark moments of doubt, walking by faith means choosing to fling ourselves upon the truth of the gospel that we've been awakened to see. Really, to proclaim that truth to our souls. That the Son of God came down from heaven to seek and to save that which is lost. And in my weakness and in my failings, I see that I am one of those lost sheep in need of saving. Jesus swears in his word, he did not come to call the righteous, he came looking for sinners. And so whenever I stumble into sin and I sense my weaknesses and my failings to live up to what I know I ought to be doing before God, it's in those moments that I need to refresh my soul with the truth that Jesus didn't come to call those who thought they were righteous. He came for the sake of those who knew they weren't. And in my moments of weakness, guess what I recognize about myself? I recognize I'm not one of the righteous. That qualifies me to be one of those whom Jesus came to seek. Jesus said that he came to give his life as a ransom for many and that none who willingly come to him will ever be cast out. Oh, in my failings, in my sins, in the ways, in the ways that I stumble, I grieve and I mourn before the Lord. I hate myself for it. Right? But in those moments, rather than giving into despair, I need to recognize that that grief is a godly grief. It's a grief that's only there because the Spirit of God is there in my heart. It's a grief that's only there because God has brought me to the point where I no longer desire and revel in sin the way that I used to. I hate it now. I mourn it now. 
And in those moments, I need to cling tightly to the fact that I, even as weak as I am and as stumbling as I am when I come to Jesus, I'm still willingly coming to Him. And He's the one that promised none who come to me will ever be cast out. That's walking. That's following Jesus in faith. And it's like Abraham, you know? Romans chapter 4, what qualified, what, what enabled Abraham to glorify God? It wasn't that Abraham thought that he could in his own strength fulfill what God had promised to do for him. Remember what it says in Romans 4.18 and in following, Abraham's body was as good as dead. He had nothing to give in order to accomplish the promises that God had made for him. But it says in that chapter that he grew strong in faith. He glorified God by growing strong in faith and believing that despite his own weaknesses and despite his failings and his inability to do what God was going to bring about, he still continued believing that God would fulfill his word and that God was able to do what he had promised. See, this is how you glorify God through your weaknesses, not by trying to make yourself stronger but by coming to the point where you more willingly and more openly acknowledge that I am not able in myself to do the promises that God has made for me. I cannot accomplish them, but God has promised that He will make it happen. And so in defiance against your weakness and in defiance against your sin and your conscience and all the ways that the enemy seeks to attack you and make you believe that you are unworthy of the God of glory who calls you into his grace, in defiance against all of that, you must proclaim in those moments, God is faithful to his word and what I cannot accomplish, he will. This is what Martin Luther did whenever he was, he was battling against the devil in his prayer closet, right? Yeah, Satan, I know. I know I'm, I'm, the, I'm the most unworthy sinner. I know my conscience afflicts me every single day. But my hope is in one who has made satisfaction on my behalf. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Walking with Christ by faith means believing that his blood is sufficient for me that his word is enough and that his resurrection secures my hope. That's how Paul puts it in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That is the pinnacle expression of faith. Faith is not merely making a decision. It's the manner in which the Christian lives his or her entire life. True faith culminates in refuge-seeking trust, an active movement of the soul towards God as God has revealed himself to us in Christ. That's faith. And we live by that faith, Paul says. We live by it. Louis Burkhoff wrote in his Systematic Theology that this is the crowning element of faith. Faith is not merely a matter of the intellect, nor of the intellect and emotions combined. It is also a matter of the will. 
determining the direction of the soul, an act of the soul going out towards its object and appropriating it. That is, faith is the soul being awakened and enlivened and then stretching out to Christ to grab a hold of him and bring him in. Burkhoff says, without this activity, the object of our faith remains outside of us. Faith embraces it and lives in the reality of that object, Christ Jesus. Now, as we come to the end of our time this morning, I want to focus on a couple of ways that we can discern the presence of faith in our lives. It's very easy and will be common for most of us that when we sit under preaching that forces us to engage in a serious examination of the nature of true faith and whether or not we have true faith, it's very easy and it will be very common for us to see within ourselves all kinds of reasons to make us doubt whether or not we truly have faith. I don't want to be guilty of minimizing that struggle because when you are brought to the point where you are wrestling with God over whether or not your faith is genuine, that's a good place to be. I don't want to be guilty of minimizing that struggle, but I do think that there are two ways we can go about working through this in order to look honestly at the state of our own faith and still come away encouraged and and with a fuller degree of assurance in our faith than when we began. In other words, self-examination doesn't need to lead to despair. We all have reasons to doubt whether or not we're truly saved. You look long enough at your life, you'll see plenty of sin there. And if you don't... If you don't If you don't find reasons in your own life that make you question whether or not you're a true believer, be careful how I say this. If your conscience is not troubled by the things that you find in your own life, then you're not looking hard enough. Let me offer a couple of things that will help us discern the presence of true faith in our lives. First of all, well, actually, uh, just thoughts. Thoughts on distinguishing true faith from false faith. Thoughts on distinguishing true faith from false faith. The presence of true faith is not determined by whether you have a perfect or a fully mature faith. Do you get that? Sometimes I drill on so long, my voice just kind of blends in. Just one syllable runs into, its, into the next. The presence of true faith is not determined by whether or not you have a perfect or fully mature faith. It's about whether or not you have a sincere faith. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that true believers and false believers are all in danger of drifting from what we have heard about Christ. But there's a really significant difference between the way that a true believer will respond to that and the way that a false believer will respond to that. True believers will hear the warning about drifting in Hebrews chapter 2, and that warning will arouse within them a greater care and vigilance to make sure that they are holding fast to Christ. 
The believer will hear the warning and will take heed to the warning. That warning will awaken in them a deeper concern to press on to know the Lord. And they will respond to that warning in faith by responding in pursuit of Christ. Don't drift away from Christ, the believer's heart says. Right, I need to make sure I don't drift away from Christ. Let me go seek Him. Let me pursue Him. Let me abide in Him. That's the believer's heart. For the false believer, despite the warnings of the Word, no matter how often they hear those warnings, don't drift away from Christ, see to it that you don't fall away. Despite those warnings, the false believer will over time, even little by little, continue drifting away from what they've heard about Christ until they finally fall away altogether. The warning will have no impact on them. It will not course correct them. My friend, are you drifting from Christ? Does Jesus no longer hold your interest the way he once did? Is he losing your gaze? Does he still captivate you? Or are you beginning to be captivated by lesser things of the world? I think in all of these examples, we can find illustrations in our own lives that would say, yeah, in some ways, I think we're all drifting. We've started to take pleasure in the things of the world that we didn't used to take pleasure in once we, when we were first saved. We're spending less time in serious, devout, holy contemplation of God's word. We are drifting away from communion with our Father in prayer, and the hallowedness of his name does not seem to be increasing in our hearts. We can all confess ways that we are, that we are in the drifting boat. But that's not the ultimate factor in determining whether or not we have true or false faith. What is most important here is not whether we experience what it means to drift. We all are going to experience what it means to drift. What is most important, though, is how we respond when we realize that we are drifting. When we return to uh, our spiritual sextant, sextant and map and compass, when we take up the word under the illuminating instruction of the Holy Spirit, and we see how far we are drifting away from Christ, true faith feels the pressure of that reality and makes a real, drastic, and immediate change in order to course correct. It may not be a fully perfect change. It may not be as much change as is needed, but it still makes an immediate about face to try and go in the right direction. And even for a true believer, when we choose not to do that, God will discipline us and he will make us utterly miserable until we are driven by depression and despair and emptiness to return to him. I would say at the heart, I, I like Spurgeon, struggle with depression. And at, I struggle deeply with it. And I think at the heart of every expression of depression in my life, is a lack of fellowship and communion with God. Or at least in my senses, it's a lack of fellowship with Him in my experience. You know, God uses that to drive us further into Him. Don't despise His dealings with us in those ways. 
So that's a first thought. Distinguishing, we need to distinguish. If we want to discern the presence of faith in our lives, we need to distinguish between true faith and false faith. And one of the expressions that I listed here is, how do you respond to the warnings of Scripture? When you're drifting away from Christ, how do you respond to that? Do you pursue Him, or do you just keep going your merry way, drifting little by little? That'll tell you the difference between true faith and false faith. Now, a second thought. We need to distinguish between weak faith and false faith. So many believers who have weak faith can fall into the trap of despair and doubt unnecessarily because they read, they misread their false faith as, or their, excuse me, they misread their weak faith as false faith. There's a huge difference between the two. False faith, according to Matthew 13, 20 through 21, when it is assailed by pressures of trial and suffering in this world, it collapses under that pressure. Luke chapter 8, verse 13, false faith manifests in people who may be believed for a little while, but when they are tempted, they fall away immediately. Maybe you remember from our time in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, that false faith grows bored with Christ eventually and starts to pay attention to myths and different doctrines and enters into speculative thinking. Whereas weak faith... Weak faith may doubt, may come into seasons of doubt, but it will never abandon the pursuit. Weak faith may doubt Christ, but it will never abandon the pursuit of Christ. Weak faith may shake and quiver, but it remains standing with Christ in the end. Weak faith may question, but it never enters into speculation. It continues seeking Christ for greater clarity. In fact, weak faith may be very small, like a mustard seed. But in the end, it will persevere. And through the rich ministry of the Holy Spirit, it will grow and become one of the largest trees in the garden. Weak faith may be filled with all kinds of doubts. But weak faith seeks answers in Christ. It does not turn away from Christ to find something else. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, if you are like me, you will find many ways where you can see your faith in Christ falling short of the maturity that we find in the Bible. But we need to keep in mind that the evidence that we've been born again is not found in having perfect faith. It's found in having a genuine and sincere faith. If you can identify in your life the presence of the kind of faith that Jesus is describing in John chapter 3, if you can identify the presence of that kind of faith in any way, then you need to take heart. Because no matter how small that evidence might appear to you, it is evidence of a radical change that God has accomplished in you. If that's us, if we can discern the presence of true faith, then we need to continue to devote ourselves in faith to Christ and to his teachings so that we will nourish and strengthen the faith that the Holy Spirit has birthed within us. Reading, memorizing, meditating on Scripture, but also devoting ourselves to prayer. Living with a clean conscience before God and men. Loving the people of Christ. And laying our lives down in practical and sacrificial service for their well-being. 
ordering our lives according to practical, faith-filled holiness and godliness and devoting ourselves in the power of the Holy Spirit to the obedience of faith. That's what we need to be doing. If we find any measure of true faith in our lives, we need to be devoting ourselves to cultivating it, enriching it, nourishing it with the truth of God. Now, if you cannot discern the presence of true faith in your life, what should you do? If after all of this you say, man, those markers of true faith, I don't know if I have any of those in my life. What am I supposed to do? Well, first of all, take heart because you are in the same boat with Nicodemus. And what is Jesus doing with Nicodemus? He's talking to him. He's explaining to him the nature of true faith. He's calling him to believe. Just because you don't find presence of this kind of faith in your life yet does not mean that you are forsaken by the Lord. What you need to do is do exactly what Jesus is calling Nicodemus to do in the rest of this passage. And we're going to look at this more next week. But in essence, if you can't find in yourself any evidence of true saving faith, then what you need to do is discipline yourself to continue looking upon Jesus as the Son of God more fully. You need to spend your time looking at Him. You need to spend your time beholding Him lifted up for sinners like you. You need to give your life, or excuse me, you need to see Christ giving His life in place of yours and seeing in that expression the expression of the Father's love for the world that sent His Son for the righteous and the unrighteous. Believers and unbelievers, Jesus, God expresses His love by sending forth Jesus. You need to see Jesus giving his life in place of yours as the expression of the Father's love and his desire for sinners like you to turn from their sinful ways and take refuge in his Son and live. In essence, what you need to do is keep looking to Jesus. You need to run to him until you are surely convinced by the Spirit of himself that you have become a true believer. If you doubt whether you're a believer, you've got two options. You can keep seeking Christ until he assures you that he's made you his child. Or you can stop seeking Christ and go to hell. That is it. I urge you to seek Christ. To run to him and find his almighty power for salvation. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is through the foolishness of preaching that you save those who believe. And so I pray, God, that you would enable us to see true faith in our lives. You would enable us to see evidence of your grace in our lives and that that would encourage us and spur us to go further on in our walk with you. Or that we would have confidence and assurance that you've made us your children. And we would have the hope we need to rest securely in you and in your promises. Lord, if we don't find evidence of true faith in our lives, I pray we would heed the warnings of your word, that we would follow the instructions of your word to come to Jesus, to seek refuge in his name. Father, to behold in him your love and your desire for sinners to be saved, 
to see in him the, the expression of Psalm 86.5 that you are good and you are ready to forgive. You are abounding in loving kindness for anyone who calls upon you. Lord, let us call upon you now in spirit and in truth. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now for the benediction. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. May you all go forward and love him with that incorruptible love you've been given in faith. Amen. May you go in peace.